Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. So this is Joshua 22, starting in verse 32. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. They say that there is no bond to bring people together like the bond of war, at least where co-combatants are concerned. Soldiers who fight together are forced to rely on one another. Relationships that never could have taken place outside the zone of conflict, suddenly uh, these soldiers are bonded together by the experience that they have, a bond that no one in the outside world can truly understand. And yet those bonds struggle as deep as they are to survive the peace. Connections that are so close in the time of conflict struggle to survive the time of peace. As we read the end of Joshua 22, it sounds like good news There's going to be peace and not war. The people have been planning for war, but it turns out that crisis has been averted. And based on where we've been in the book of Joshua, you might suppose just jumping in and reading these verses that the kind of conflict that's been averted is um, Israel's not going to go to war with some pagan tribe. Some Canaanite tribe is not going to be wiped off the map because now there's peace. But actually, the war that has been averted is a war between Israel and Israel, between tribe and tribe. The very beginning of our look at Joshua, there was a certain group, two two and a half tribes, who had already settled east of the Jordan. You remember that? And as the people of Israel were crossing the Jordan, the condition that those tribes had been given, this was the tribe of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh, the condition that they had had to agree to in order to have possession of their land east of the Jordan is that when the time came to fight, they would travel across the river, leave their homes behind, and fight with the rest of Israel. And that's what they did. And we saw that earlier. They traveled, even though their homes were already settled, they left their homes and they fought side by side. At the beginning of chapter 22, now that the peace has been won, now that uh, Joshua is handing out the land, dividing up the inheritances, it comes time to speak to these tribes, and Joshua thanks them. He acknowledges their faithfulness. You promised to fight with us, and you did fight with us, and now you're being released. So if you look at the beginning of the chapter, you see that Joshua is praising them and sending them on their way. This is in uh, verse, let's see, we'll start in verse 2. 
These are the words Joshua speaks to them. He says, You've kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. That's how the chapter begins. And by the end, Israel is planning to make war on these very people that Joshua has blessed and sent on their way. Something happens. A conflict brews up. And behind that conflict, as is almost always the case, behind that conflict is fear. There's fear. And we're going to try to understand that fear, the fear that almost led Israel to turn against itself, to divide up in civil war, because these are fears that we share, and fears that all too often we listen to and take counsel from as well. The conquest was over, and the consequence of of that end of the, the fighting was that now a river separated the children of Israel. Two and a half tribes were settled across the Jordan on the east side of the river, and all the rest received their inheritance on the west side of the river. So now they were separated in a way that they hadn't been separated before. But really, there was more than a river between them. There was distance between them. A distance that was more than just geographical. A separation that ran a little deeper than it seems to. As soon as the tribes are parted, the trouble starts. As The tribes heading back to cross the Jordan head back. They do something that raises red flags. As they reach the Jordan, on the banks of the Jordan, on the western side, but right at the edge, they build an altar. Just the two and a half tribes build an altar there. And it's described in a certain way. It is an altar of imposing size. It's visible for miles around. It's a pretty imposing structure. And then the word gets back to the the tribes on the western side of the Jordan. Hey, our brothers in arms, our fellow tribes, they've erected a new altar. We have an altar in Shiloh. And we already have worship worked out. And they've gone and built themselves a new altar. And that's when they raise up. They gather together, we're told, and they prepare to make war on what had been their allies what had been their co-combatants in the conquest. So there's more than a river between them. There was some distance between them. And once a distance opens up between people, it's harder to see what they really are like. Over the distance, it's hard to make people out. It's hard to read their expressions. It's hard to tell where they're really coming from. There are different kinds of distance. There's literal distance, obviously, Um, there are people 
we've been so close to in our lives that it's impossible to imagine not being close to them. You know who these people are when you get married because they're the people who serve as like your bridesmaids and groomsmen and that sort of thing. People you couldn't live without, people your hearts beat as one, people you want to share that, that time with. And then 20 years later, you realize, I'm not in contact with any of these people. There's a distance that's opened up. And although uh, we still are sort of benevolently disposed toward each other, we don't know each other the way that we once did. Sometimes, have you ever had this happen before? You, you haven't seen a friend for a long time. They moved away. And you get stories secondhand of what's happened in their lives. I get these mostly from my mother, who, who reads everyone's Facebook posts and gives me summaries of, of what she's learned. And I hear stories about people I haven't seen in years. And, and it's hard sometimes to reconcile this story with the person that I knew. Like, it doesn't seem like these can be the same people. There's something crazy has happened in the intervening years. And I say to myself, they're not who they used to be. I feel like I don't know who these people are anymore. What was that all about? That's what distance does to relationships. Put a little distance between people, and that closeness erodes. That understanding disappears. It's physical distance, but there's other kinds of distance. There's... uh, Something you might think of as like social distance. There's a distance between who we are and who we present ourselves to be in public. We all have these public personas. Uh, It's not new in the age of social media. This has always been the case, public figures. right? You may have uh, a sports celebrity or a movie star or something that you feel like you know through their work and through you know, articles you've read about them. But if, if you're relatively sane, like there's a part of you that realizes that you don't know this person, right? that this person who seems so real to you, if you met them one-on-one, would be a stranger. Right? There's a distance between how we present ourselves and, and who we really are, between our public face and our private face. And that distance sometimes makes our actions difficult to understand. I had this uh, brought home to me, kind of the the consequences of the age that we live in once when uh, Lori and I were uh, interrogated by a person we knew in the community who uh, was asking us about our pastor because they only knew this person through social media. And the question that was asked of Lori was, is everybody at your church like that? The implication wasn't good. It was bad. How many times have, have you found yourself saying things like this? I know that, that he seems really harsh or really wild or really whatever online, but actually in real life, he's great. Acknowledging that distance right between perceptions and reality, that distance that separates us, that makes it hard sometimes to trust the intentions of other people. If there's a distance like that between each other, between people, I mean, think for a moment about the distance between us and God. Even our own confession, the Westminster Confession in chapter 7, describes the gap, the distance between us 
between our Creator and, and we, the creatures, as an unbridgeable distance. It is so great, our confession says, that the only possible way for any sort of knowledge to transfer over that distance is for God to bridge it himself. It would be impossible for us to know anything about him, in other words, across such a distance if he did not reveal himself to us. There's a distance, too, between the Bible and us, not just the distance you feel sometimes when you're reading and thinking, um, I have no idea what I just read. There's a distance of time between when these words were written down and today. We talk about God's covenant promises, but think of the distance that separates the days when those promises were made and our own times, how much more than a river flows between us and them. Huge distance, an incredible gap. And across that distance, sometimes it's hard to make God out. It's hard to read his expressions. It's hard to even know if he's there. That distance is like a field, a vast field, untended, unplowed, where weeds grow up naturally. And the weed that grows up so easily in that distance is the weed of fear. This is what happens in Joshua 22. It doesn't take much time, much distance, for the people of Israel who've been so united to start fearing one another and fearing the actions of one another. The actions of each side illustrate the fear that filled their hearts. When the tribes west of the Jordan hear about this altar that's been built, immediately, immediately they forget the present. They forget the fact that we were fighting together yesterday And they start remembering the past. They remember the sin of Achan, which we saw earlier in the book of Joshua, and the infidelity of Achan that had resulted in the punishment of the people. They remember back in the book of Numbers, chapter 25, there had been a period where the worship of Baal was rampant throughout Israel, and God punished them as a result. That's where their minds go immediately. When they hear that this altar has been built, they imagine, they think, they fear idolatry is breaking out almost immediately. The moment they left, they've turned away from God. And it's up to us to go and chastise them, or God will punish us too. And so they're ready to go to war when they hear the words, because they're afraid that the past is repeating itself. But the tribes who built that altar, the Gadites and the Reubenites and half of the Manassehites, they also are acting out of fear. As we learn much later, when a peace delegation travels to meet them and asks them, what's the meaning of of your actions? Why have you done this? What's going on? They explain the reason they built this altar was fear. And they too had forgotten the present. They had forgotten the bond of comradeship, they had begun to fear, but not the past, the future. 
As they contemplated crossing the river and settling on the other side of the river across from the promised land, they started to think, what's going to happen to our children? Sure, we fought together. And those guys know that we're on the same side. But will their children know this? How will their children treat our children who have grown up on the far side of the river, outside the promised land? Will they still see us as part of Israel, or will they see us as outsiders? That's their fear. And so they build a giant altar as near to the edge of the promised land as they can, so that those on the east side of the river can look across the river and see that altar that turns out to bear witness to the unity, the hope for unity between the west and the east. So fear drives both. Fear of one another, of of what they will do, what they are doing. And those fears circle around familiar poles for us. They, They circle around what we could call orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right belief and right action. The suspicions are, on the one hand, those people are not going to hold to right belief. They are going to abandon the faith that they have confessed. And on the other side, the fear is those people are not going to live out the faith that they confess. While they are loving and accepting today, they will stop being those things in the future. Their right practice will suffer. The West looks at the East and says, you're not going to stay faithful. And the East looks at the West and says, you're not going to accept us. You're not going to love us. And over the distance, over the distance, They can't see anything that contradicts their fears. And so they act on them, just as we do today. Do you look at other Christians over the distance at what they're doing and say to yourself, I don't think those people are going to stay faithful? Looks to me like they're compromising. They're turning their backs on the teachings of Jesus, and they're worshiping the gods of this land instead. You look at your fellow Christians and and worry about them in that way, fear them in that way. Sometimes we look and we say, hey, they've rejected the Bible's teachings about sin and salvation. They don't talk about the gospel any longer. Or we look across the gap and we say, hey, they've abandoned Jesus' teaching about love and forgiveness. They're not doing the things that Jesus has called us to do. And we look across that distance and we let our fear shape the way we see each other and the way we act towards each other. Do you look at other Christians across that distance and fear that they are unaccepting? That those Christians have forgotten how to love? Do you worry that they're not united with you? That their faith is unrecognizable in your eyes? It's not just each other that we doubt. It's God as well. 
The distance that separates us is nothing compared to the distance between us and the God who made us. And we look over that distance and we feel suspicious. Will he be faithful to us? Or will he abandon us? Are his promises reliable after so much time? Or will we be shamed? Will we fail? Will we be overcome? Is this a losing battle that we're fools to be fighting? We look across the distance and we ask, will he truly accept us? Will he truly love us? Or is this a lie? Is there nothing but judgment coming out of his lips, assuming he has lips at all? Assuming he's even there. When the distance is so great and our fears are so deeply rooted, how do you possibly find answers to questions like that? Where could you possibly go to learn otherwise? When Joshua 22, the answer is interesting. The answer is witness. It's witness that resolves the conflict. It's witness that uh, balances the fear, that answers the fear. The tribes who've built the altar, all they have to do to stop the conflict is explain what it's for. A delegation is sent. This delegation is led by this priest, Phineas. Uh, It may sound like this is like a peaceful gesture, But if you know the backstory of Phineas, if you go back to Numbers 25, Phineas is the priest who rose to prominence when he solved the idolatry problem of Baal worship with his spear. So he is a fearsome priest who's been sent. And the fact that this is the man who's been chosen reveals what the problem seems to be. It's an idolatry problem, so we've sent our best guy to stamp it out. But when he hears the reason for the altar, that they built the altar as a testimony to the unity of of their tribes with the tribes across the river, that all of us serve the one, the mighty God, he's persuaded this isn't a bad thing. Our fears were not justified. In fact, the thing we feared has now turned around to encourage us to be something to welcome. This gesture that seemed to be a gesture of distance is actually meant to symbolize our nearness. So they bring the report back, and it resolves the conflict, as we saw at the end of our text. And it was because of that that the people, when they, they refer to the altar, they called the altar witness. So this is referred to as the altar of witness, That's not exactly what it says. It doesn't say they called it the altar of witness. They called it witness. That was the name of it, its purpose. It embodied this idea of bearing witness, of making the testimony plain, of of making it unavoidable because it was a witness of imposing size that could be seen for miles around. It turns out the altar of witness was not a competitor to the true altar at Shiloh, it was an amplifier. If you've ever had this problem um, 
I'm plagued by technological problems, and one of the ones that always plagues me is that the place I intend to work is always the farthest from, from the Wi-Fi network center, and as a result, I never have a good signal. Well, it turns out you can extend the range by adding little units to the signal, and it boosts the signal so it encompasses more. So when you think about the altar of witness, think about it that way. This is not meant to replace what they've left behind. It's meant to boost the signal so that it reaches across the river. So that just because their children grow up outside the promised land doesn't mean that they grow up outside the community of promise. And once this witness is explained, then the distance loses its power to breed fear. What looked like an act of defiance turns out to be a touching act of faith. And this is why we should bear clear witness. There's a need for us as Christians to bear witness to the larger world. And usually when we talk about the idea of being a witness, that's what we have in mind. That you should bear witness to uh, the outside world, to those who do not know Christ. But in this case, you see that there's, there's another angle to this. That there's a value in bearing witness to one another. It's interesting when Paul, at the beginning of the book of Romans, talks about his desire to see the Romans. He's writing them a letter because he can't go. He can't be with them personally. But he does talk about his desire to be with them. And he says in Romans 1, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. There's a distance between Paul and the Romans. and It's a distance he wants to bridge. He wants to be close. He wants to understand one another so that they can be a blessing to one another, so that their witness can be an encouragement to one another. Not just so that Paul can encourage them through his testimony to the gospel, so that he can be encouraged by them. That's a value of bearing witness to one another. That clear witness in Joshua 22 accomplishes a couple of things. First of all, for those who worry about orthodoxy, it reassures them of the faithfulness of their brothers and sisters. That altar, they realize, once they understand it, they realize that it's a testimony that says, yes, I will stay faithful to Christ and his body. We will remain faithful to you. But it does something else. That altar of witness also provides a foundation for unity in practice, for orthopraxy. It says, yes, I will love as Christ loved and do as he did. Both of those things are essential and both of them are proclaimed It's important for us to bear witness, clear witness, to be open about what we believe. Not obnoxious, but not stealthy. To be clear, intelligible, so people know what it is that we're saying to the world. And if that's true for us, it's also true for God. God bears witness. How I asked, is it possible 
to answer all of the questions and the fears that we have when it comes to trusting in God across this incredible distance, the answer is the same. It's witness. In the same way that the altar of witness signified to the people who saw it, God has borne witness to himself in order to bridge that distance. In order to bridge that uncrossable distance, God sent his son. The father sent the son, Jesus Christ, to bear clear witness to the truth of his promises. As John said in his prologue, John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Standing at the edge of that precipice, looking out into eternity, no one has seen God. None of us can see across that distance, and yet Christ comes across that distance, and suddenly what cannot be seen is tangible, can be seen. Christ not only comes to bear witness, but in his actions, in his life, he bears witness. He's got some orthopraxy to back up his orthodoxy. His altar of sacrifice has become for us an altar that bears witness. It testifies across the distance to his love. The author of Hebrews says that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That once and for all sacrifice on that altar means that that, that altar need never be used again for sacrifice. What Christ did suffices for every need. And so that altar continues to bear witness to that once and for all sacrifice. But that happened a long time ago. It was 2,000 years ago. Such a great distance between us and those days, between those events and our time now. And Jesus, the Ascension Christians, confess that Jesus left. Jesus left the building. He's not here anymore. But when he left, he promised to send a comforter, a companion, the Holy Spirit. He did not leave us alone on our side of the river, but sent to us the Spirit. The Spirit, as we said, is a seal that bears witness to the truth of the promises. Paul says in Romans 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There is a witness that testifies to the truth of these things despite the great distance, and it is the Spirit of God. In Romans 5, 5, Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has been given to us. He's not left us without a witness that testifies to us. So if that's true, we should be transparent about our fears. We see the people of Israel divided by fear, and we should just be honest that we're fearful people too. And that we even fear one another sometimes. That it's hard to trust each other. And that even as as good Christian people, we, we fear God in the wrong way, not the right way. And we doubt him, and we struggle to remain faithful to him. All of these things are true, and we should be honest about them. We should be honest about them. In the same way that this delegation of Phineas before war began was sent to find out the truth of things, we should be honest about the truth of things. Transparent. Not, I'm not saying that we should acknowledge our fears in order to validate them revel in them, confirm ourselves in them, that sort of thing, but acknowledge them so that we can overcome them. It would be a bad therapy session if all we ever did was talk about our problems and then wallow in them. Like Nobody goes to therapy in the hopes of being able to just talk forever about problems that never go away. But your hope is that as a part of the process, you will leave those problems behind. And if that's true in, in that case for temporal problems... It's true for larger problems as well. Our fear, our doubt, our insecurities. Be honest about those things and transparent not to cling to them, but so that we can be rid of them by the power of the Spirit. Be transparent about your fears so that you can be a witness. The way to face your fears is by being clear about what you believe, warts and all. To commit yourself to claim Jesus before the world, regardless of the cost. And also to own the church as your church, regardless of its imperfections. It's easy for us to distance ourselves from one another, certainly in in the times that we live in. You as a Christian, if, if you want respect, if you want people to admire your faith, criticize other Christians. And let's be honest, there's plenty to criticize. I'm not saying there's not. But but if our war is against ourselves, against one another, if we indulge in those fears and cannot accept the people of Christ as flawed as they remain to be, then are we bearing witness to the Christ in whom we are united? Maybe we can't bear witness until we've first seen the witness that has been proclaimed to us, the witness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the the glorious truth that God proclaims to us in his word. When you fear, when you doubt, when you stumble, when you're uncertain, you can look across the river of this life and see an altar of immense size, visible across the distance, testifying to this truth, testifying to the truth of the promise that God has made, that when you cross, I will be with you. Thank you for listening. 
You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.